0: Section 85, Introduction. Section 85 is the only revelation listed by Joseph Smith as having been received during November 1832. Here is the prophet's summary of events since September when he received section 84. He says, I continued the translation of the Bible, that's the inspired revision, and ministering to the church through the fall, accepting a hurried journey to Albany, New York, and Boston, in company with Bishop Newell K. Whitney, from which I returned on the 6th of November, immediately after the birth of my son, Joseph Smith Third. About the 8th of November, I received a visit from Elders Joseph Young, Brigham Young, and Heber C. Kimball of Mendon, Monroe County, New York. They spent four or five days at Kirtland, during which we had many interesting moments. At one of our interviews, Brother Brigham and John P. Green, who had just moved his family to Kirtland, spoke in tongues, which was the first time I had heard this gift myself. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 295 to 297. By November the 27th, 1832, Joseph had received some disturbing letters concerning the affairs of the saints in Missouri. Joseph there wrote a very stern letter to William W. Phelps, and section 85 comprises extractions from this letter which were written directly under the influence of the Lord. Here is section 85.
1: It is the duty of the Lord's clerk whom he has appointed to keep a history and a general church record of all things that transpire in Zion, and of all those who consecrate properties and receive inheritances legally from the bishop. Never at
0: any time was the law of consecration lived perfectly among the early saints as directed by the Lord. Much of this letter is addressed to William W. Phelps, designed to inform the leaders in Missouri of their deficiencies so that they could be corrected. One of the most serious problems was that the clerk in Missouri, who was John Whitmer, had not been sufficiently careful in keeping the church history. He had also been careless in tabulating the various consecrations of the saints and the full description of the inheritances assigned to them by the bishop. Edward Partridge. The bishop had been reprimanded by the Lord in two previous revelations, section 50 and 39, and section 64 and 17, but apparently the bishop had not given heed to these warnings, nor had the clerk
1: been required
0: to fulfill his duties.
1: And also their manner of life, their faith, and works, and also of the apostates, who apostatize after receiving their inheritances. The clerk had also failed to
0: record the way of life of the saints, both as to their beliefs and their works. What was more serious was the fact that there had not been a careful record of those who had consecrated their property, but had apostatized after
1: receiving their inheritance from the bishop. It is contrary to the will and commandment of God that those who receive not their inheritance by consecration, agreeable to his law, Which he has given, that he may tithe his people to prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning, should have their names enrolled with the people of God. It was also a commandment of the Lord
0: that those who apparently had refused to consecrate their property and receive their various inheritance should be declared apostate. They were not to appear on the rolls of the church as members in good standing. The Lord declared that the law of consecration was the Lord's way of tithing the people wherein they would not merely give a tenth of their increase, but all of their excess increase over and above their actual needs. The Lord said this refining process was to prepare the saints against the coming judgments and the terrible burning of the wicked as seen by Malachi. He had prophesied, quote, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, also in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. In section 64, verse 23, The Lord says that those who sincerely enter into a tithing covenant with the Lord shall not be burned.
1: Neither is their genealogy to be kept or to be had where it may be found on any of the records or history of the church.
0: Even the genealogy should not be kept of those who had apostatized after entering the law of consecration or had joined the church but had refused to qualify for an inheritance. In fact, their names were
1: to be stricken from any documents or records throughout the church. Their names shall not be found, neither the names of the fathers, nor the names of the children written in the book of the law of God, saith the Lord of hosts. Their lineage and ancestry would also be stricken
0: from the records of the church. In addition to the adverse reports which Joseph had received from Missouri, the Holy Spirit was whispering to him additional outrages which were occurring among the saints in Missouri.
1: Yea, thus saith the still small voice which whispereth through and pierceth all things, and oftentimes it maketh my bones to quake while it maketh manifest, saying, And it shall come to pass, that I the Lord God will send one mighty and strong, holding the scepter of power in his hand. Clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth, to set in order the house of God, and to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints whose names are found, and the names of their fathers and of their children enrolled in the book of the law of God.
0: In this verse,
1: the Lord threatens
0: to have the whole operation in Missouri taken over by the, quote, one mighty and strong, unquote, who will hold, quote, the scepter of power in his hand, unquote. It will be this one mighty and strong who will set in order the house of God according to the Lord's original instructions. This meant that he would arrange the inheritances of the saints as required for a Zion society and see that the inheritances
1: were accurately recorded in the book of god's law while that man who was called of god and appointed that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of god shall fall by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning now the Lord pronounced a judgment on Edward Partridge, who was
0: originally assigned to perform these tasks. He had not only failed to perform this work, but he had presumed to improve on the Lord's original instructions with his personal ideas, and thereby, quote, study the ark of God, unquote, according to his own design. In biblical history, the Lord's rebuke for anyone trying to, quote, study the ark of God, unquote, had a profound significance. It will be recalled that the Lord had forbidden anyone to take hold of the sacred Ark of the Covenant except the priesthood of Aaron. The decree was that if an unauthorized person touched the Ark, he would be instantly killed. Nevertheless, as the Ark was being transported to Jerusalem, it was jostled on the cart, and Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark to keep it from falling. The gesture was no doubt designed to be helpful, but Eusa was immediately struck dead just as the Lord had decreed. This is described in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, and 1 Chronicles 13, verse 9. Now, in this letter to the Missouri Saints, Bishop Partridge was addressed in the same ominous tone as the story in the Bible. He was not only accused of trying to steady the ark, but the Lord had virtually implied that Bishop Partridge had exposed himself to the possibility of being struck down by the shaft of death. This did not happen immediately, but barely a year later when the saints were driven out of Jackson County on May 27, 1840, Bishop Partridge died. He was only 46 years of age. By then the damage to the Zion culture under the law of consecration was virtually complete and the military expulsion of the entire church from the state of Missouri had begun. The saints had barely crossed the Mississippi and reached Illinois when Bishop Partridge died. Since those cruel and brutal days, scholars have expended tremendous amounts of energy as they puzzled over three vital questions connected with the unexpected termination of the Zion government in Missouri. When we come to section 101, the Lord will make it clear that the saints brought the tragedy on themselves through disobedience. Nevertheless, these three questions remain unanswered. Number 1. What had Bishop Partridge done that so offended the Lord and aroused the indignation of Joseph Smith? 2. Who was the one mighty and strong Whom the Lord threatened to send down to Zion with a scepter of power to set up the inheritances according to God's original design. Number three, when the saints do return to Missouri, and as the Lord says, Zion shall be redeemed in the due time of the Lord, and that's in Doctrine and Covenants 136 and 18, will it be this same, quote, one mighty and strong, unquote, who will use the scepter of priesthood power to set up the Zion society correctly. In other words, if this is referring to Joseph Smith, will he be resurrected and returned to lead the saints back to Missouri? Now, in answer to the first question as to how Bishop Partridge had offended the Lord and aroused the indignation of Joseph Smith— We now know that the bishop thought there were defects in the law of consecration as the Lord had set it up, and he intended to correct these deficiencies, but without any authorization from the Lord. We have located some of the contracts which were drawn up by Bishop Partridge, and they were definitely not what God had prescribed. For example, after a family had consecrated everything they owned to the church— The bishop was supposed to deed back to each steward and his family what they needed for an inheritance. Instead, Bishop Partridge, quote, leased, unquote, back a portion of the property and then, quote, loaned, unquote, them the money needed for the operation of their inheritance. This arrangement missed the genius of the Lord's plan where each steward owned his inheritance and managed it according to his own inclinations. But the, quote, lease, unquote, arrangement allowed the bishop to meddle in the administration of the stewardship contrary to the intent of the Lord. Furthermore, If the steward became dissatisfied and wanted to leave the order, the bishop demanded back the, quote, lease, unquote, and held the steward liable for the, quote, loan, unquote, covering the operating expenses. All of this is in the book by John Henry Evans, entitled Joseph Smith, An American Prophet, pages 242 to 243. From the Lord's point of view, practically everything was wrong with the way Bishop Partridge was handling the saints' inheritances. The Lord had specifically said that each steward was to receive his inheritance or property with a fee simple deed, which made each steward the absolute owner and manager of the property in his inheritance. And whatever was needed to operate the inheritance was also granted as part of the inheritance. There was no, quote, loan, unquote, for operating expenses. And if the steward became dissatisfied and wanted to leave the system, he took his inheritance with him because it was legally his. That was the way the Lord originally set it up as described in the Doctrine and Covenant section 83 verse 3. It is easy to visualize why the schemes of Bishop Partridge generated quarrels and misunderstandings among the people. What was worse, they violated the commandments of God. Now we come to the next question. When Joseph wrote his letter to William W. Phelps, he threatened to send down the one mighty and strong to set up the inheritances the way God had originally designed them. Who was the one mighty and strong Joseph was threatening to send down? As we reflect on this situation, it is only reasonable that since the president of the church had appointed Bishop Partridge, he obviously had the right to remove him and replace him when he failed to function correctly. However, Joseph didn't come right out and say he was the one mighty and strong. It was not until after the saints were driven out of Missouri and had settled in Nauvoo that Joseph revealed the identity of the one mighty and strong. Here were the circumstances. A body of saints were dissatisfied with the swamps and marshes in Nauvoo and had settled across the Mississippi River in a place called Montrose. By the time the prophet Joseph had escaped from his captors in Missouri— The people in Montrose had taken it upon themselves to set up a Zion society and had begun to assign inheritances under the law of consecration. However, none of this was by authority of the leaders of the church. The moment Joseph learned about the Montrose project, the prophet called a special council in Montrose, and it was there that we see Joseph exercising the attributes of the one mighty and strong. At the special council meeting, he declared, quote, The law of consecration could not be kept here, and it was the will of the Lord that we should desist from trying to keep it, and if persisted in, it would produce a perfect defeat of the object, and that he assumed the whole responsibility of not keeping it until proposed by himself, Unquote. This is in The History of the Church, Volume 4, page 91 in the Note. In asserting the attributes of the one mighty and strong, here is what Joseph Smith had done. He had spoken in the name of the Lord and terminated the further practice of the law of consecration in Montrose. He had described why it was the will of the Lord that no attempt should be made to practice the law of consecration at that time. Joseph Smith said that he assumed complete responsibility for this decision. He announced that no one should be allowed to practice the Law of Consecration in the future unless he authorized it. It is interesting that neither Joseph Smith nor any president of the Church since then has authorized the setting up of the Law of Consecration as a Church institution. There have been a variety of experiments called the United Order, or something similar, but none of them survived. A few struggling economic experiments under the name of United Order were terminated by President Taylor in 1882. Now we come to the final question. The Lord had promised the Church that Zion would be redeemed and established in Missouri in the own due time of the Lord. And that can be found in Doctrine and Covenants 136 and 18. We therefore wonder why Joseph Smith was not only the one mighty and strong, but that he would continue to have the keys to the kingdom of God even after he left this life. They said that eventually he would be resurrected and lead the church back to Jackson County where he would establish Zion and set up the law of consecration and commence the building of the new Jerusalem. To begin with, the patriarchal blessing given to Joseph Smith by his father predicted some accomplishments which would extend beyond his mortal life let me quote the last sentence of that blessing. Quote, thou, Joseph, shall hold the keys of this ministry, even the presidency of the church, both in time and in eternity. And thou shalt stand on Mount Zion when the tribes of Jacob come shouting from the north. And with the brethren, the sons of Ephraim, crown them in the name of Jesus Christ. Unquote. That's in the Utah Genealogical and Historical Magazine, Volume 23, for October 1935, page 175. This indicates that Joseph Smith would continue presiding over the Church, even after he departed from this life. It also indicated that he would stand on Mount Zion with the general authorities of the Church and welcome back the lost tribes of Israel, when they came in a vast multitude out of the north to make their way to the new Jerusalem, where they could receive the blessings of the priesthood from the hands of the sons of Ephraim. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 133, verses 26 to 32. Some of the early brethren had personal revelations disclosing the fact that Joseph would have a post-mortal ministry and intermingle with the mortal leaders of the church. One of these was Parley P. Pratt. He was traveling between Chicago and Peoria when the terrible news spread across the world that Joseph Smith and Hiram had been murdered while in the protective custody of the governor of Illinois. Parley hurriedly directed his course toward Nauvoo, but he was overwhelmed with confusion as to what advice he would give the people when he arrived. In his anguish he cried out, quote, "'O Lord!' In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray thee, show me what these things mean and what I shall say to the people, unquote. Then he continues, quote, On a sudden the Spirit of God came upon me. The Spirit said unto me, Lift up your head and rejoice, for behold, it is well with my servants Joseph and Hiram. My servant Joseph still holds the keys of my kingdom in this dispensation. And he shall stand in due time on the earth in the flesh and fulfill that to which he was appointed, This is in the autobiography of Parley P. Pratt, pages 370 to 371. Elder Pratt was so astonished and amazed with this message that he asked the Lord to repeat it, which he did. But this revelation raises numerous questions. What would be the mission of Joseph if he returned in the flesh following his resurrection? And how soon would it occur? Gradually, the authorities learned answers to many of their questions. On February 2, 1884, Apostle Erastus Snow spoke in the Logan Tabernacle and summarized what the general authorities knew about the future post-mortal ministry of Joseph Smith. First, as we have already mentioned, his authority to govern the church would continue both on the earth and in heaven. Brigham Young, John Taylor, and others would conduct the affairs of the church, but Joseph Smith would preside over its councils. This is Doctrine and Covenants 90, verses 3 to 4. Two, in the spirit world, Joseph would preside over the preaching of the gospel to those of this dispensation just as Jesus had done for those who were in prison while his body was in the tomb. That's in the Journal of Discourses, volume 25, page 33. And third, He will preside over the building of temples until there are hundreds of them operating in the church. And that's in the Journal of Discourses, volume 25, page 31. Fourth, Joseph will then be assigned to initiate the resurrection among the righteous dead of this dispensation. And this is what Elder Snow said, The next mission will be to come to prepare the way in Zion and in her stakes and in the temples of our God for turning the key to the resurrection of the dead. And who will be the first and foremost to be resurrected? Why, he whom God has placed first and foremost to hold the keys of this last dispensation. How long will it be? It is not given unto me to say, but it is given to me to say that the time is nigh at hand. Unquote. That's in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 25, page 33. All of this exciting new doctrine concerning the post-mortal mission of Joseph Smith provides startling answers to questions raised in section 113, which we will cover shortly. Meanwhile, we will summarize section 113 by mentioning that some of the brethren wanted to know the identity of the individuals mentioned in the parable of the stem by Isaiah, chapter 11. In answer to their inquiry— Section 113 reveals that the stem mentioned by Isaiah in this parable is none other than Jesus Christ. This is in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 113, verse 2. Then the brethren wanted to know the identity of the, quote, rod, unquote, that shall come forth from the stem, or Jesus Christ, in the latter days. The answer is somewhat obscure and therefore puzzling. Quote, Behold, saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, that's the Jewish line of descent, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, in whom there is laid much power. That is in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 113, verse 3. The brethren then ask about the, quote, root, unquote, of Jesse, and the Lord declared, quote, it is a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days, unquote. That's Doctrine and Covenants 113, verse 6. It is obvious that the, quote, root, unquote, describes the mission and keys of authority belonging to Joseph Smith himself. But what about the rod who seems to be of the same descent? In answer to this question, we turn to Joseph's patriarchal blessing and review it in the light of the revelation to Parley P. Pratt. We see that after this life, Joseph performs the labor of the rod. He has a very extensive mission to preside over the building of the new Jerusalem, setting up Zion and giving the righteous their eternal inheritances, he is the one mighty and strong holding the scepter of power in his hand to set in order the house of God and to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints whose names are found enrolled in the book of the law of God, Unquote. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 85, verse 7. As the Lord said to Parley P. Pratt, quote, My servant Joseph shall stand in due time on the earth in the flesh, and fulfill that to which he is appointed, Of course, his flesh would be actually the refined and exalted resurrected tabernacle of his immortal body. So with all of this revealed information, we can now put it all together. The root is Joseph Smith, during his mortal mission to hold the keys of the kingdom, being endowed with the highest order of the priesthood, and raised up as an ensign for the Gentiles while launching a worldwide gathering of Israel. Following Joseph's martyrdom, the Lord advanced him to his brilliant new role as the rod. At the appropriate time, he would be the first person in this dispensation to be resurrected, and then he would commence his new career reserved for the role of the rod. Now we return to the
1: original text. After verse 9, And all they who are not found written in the book of remembrance shall find none inheritance in that day, but they shall be cut asunder, and their portion shall be appointed them among unbelievers, where are wailing and gnashing of teeth.
0: This verse refers to the future time
1: when America
0: will have been cleansed and the saints will have returned to Missouri. Now the saints can really live the law of consecration as the Lord originally designed it. In this verse the Lord is declaring that in that future day any member of the church who is not recorded in the official church book of remembrance of those who are tithe payers or living under the law of consecration
1: will be cut off from the church and treated as outsiders. These things I say not of myself. Therefore, as the Lord speaketh, he will also fulfill. The Lord wants to emphasize
0: that all of these words are from the Lord and are not the opinions of any
1: man. And they who are of the high priesthood, whose names are not found written in the book of the law, or that are found to have apostatized, or to have been cut off from the church, as well as the lesser priesthood or the members, In that day shall not find an inheritance among the saints of the Most High. In that future day, all will be
0: expected to live the righteous law of total consecration. As the saints gather to New Jerusalem and participate in the New Zion, no level of priesthood rank will entitle a person to an inheritance
1: unless that family is recorded in the Church Book of Remembrance. Therefore it shall be done unto them as unto the children of the priest, as will be found recorded in the second chapter and sixty-first and second verses of Ezra. The Lord wants the saints to realize how important this sacred
0: record will be when the inheritances are distributed by the president of the church. People who are not on the record will be like the people who tried to claim they were priesthood holders back in the days of the prophet Ezra. It says, quote, "And the children of the priests, these sought their register among those who were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore they were treated as polluted and were put from or out of the priesthood." Unquote. That's in Ezra chapter 2 verses 61 to 62. Thus it will be when people seek inheritances in Zion, they will have to be named in the official book of remembrance or be deprived of any inheritance. In the parable of the foolish virgins, the Lord suggests that perhaps half of the nominal members of the church will not be ready when he comes, and he will have to say, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And that's in Matthew 25, verse 12. Section 86, Introduction It will be recalled that by the latter part of 1832, Joseph was still engaged in revising the New Testament under the spirit of inspiration. However, when he and Sidney Rigdon came to the parable of the wheat and the tares in the 13th chapter of Matthew, the spirit seemed to indicate that this parable had particular significance for the church in the latter days. Joseph therefore made an appeal directly to the Lord for further clarification. In his history, Joseph Smith thereafter recorded, On the 6th of December, 1832, I received the following revelation explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares. To facilitate our study of this parable, we will first present the text as it appears in the Bible, and then we will have Wendell Noble tell us how the Lord commented on it in this revelation. And now we come to section 86, and we begin by quoting from Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Quote, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Unquote. And now the commentary of the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenant section
1: 86, verses 1 to 2. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, concerning the parable of the wheat and of the tares. Behold, verily I say, the field was the world, and the apostles were the sowers of the seed. Now back to Matthew 13
0: and 25. It says, But while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way, unquote. Now, the Doctrine and Covenant, section 86, verse 3.
1: And after they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, that maketh all nations to drink of her cup, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan, sitteth to reign, behold, he soweth the tares. Wherefore, the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. Now, Matthew 13, and 26.
0: Quote, but when the blades was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also, Unquote. Now the Doctrine and Covenants,
1: section 86, verse 4. But behold, in the last days, even now, while the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word, and the blade is springing up and is yet tender. Back to Matthew,
0: chapter 13, verses 27 to 29. So the servants of the householder said unto him, Sir, did thou not sow good seed in the field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root out the wheat with them. It should be pointed out that young tares look exactly like young wheat, That is why the Savior did not want the tares to be gathered until they were sufficiently developed so they could be readily distinguished from the wheat. Now, Doctrine and
1: Covenants 86, verses 5 to 7. Behold, verily I say unto you, the angels are crying unto the Lord day and night, who are ready and waiting to be sent forth to reap down the fields. But the Lord saith unto them, Pluck not up the tares, while the blade is yet tender. For verily your faith is weak, lest you destroy the wheat also.
0: Back to Matthew now, 13 and 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into the barn, unquote. Now we have Doctrine and Covenants, section 86, verses 8
1: to 11. Therefore let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. Then ye shall first gather out the wheat from among the tares. And after the gathering of the wheat, behold, and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remaineth to be burned. Therefore thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers. For ye are lawful heirs, according to the flesh, and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage, until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Therefore... Blessed are ye, if ye continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood, a Saviour unto my people Israel. The Lord hath said it. Amen. We gain the impression
0: from the Saviour's interpretation of this parable that one of the great tasks of godly government is getting the covenant members of the priesthood who were ordained in the pre-existence an opportunity to get through the second estate when there is no priesthood lineage through which they can come. This could be true of the Anglo-Saxons, the Scandinavians, many others who carry in their bloodlines the lineage of the prophets. Nevertheless, he speaks as though the light of Christ within them, as well as their instinctive tendency to do good, have been a great blessing to the Gentiles down through the centuries. And this has been true even though these heirs of the covenant could not function as priesthood holders during the Dark Ages. However, in spite of the past, the Savior says the priesthood is now restored, and the choicest sons of the covenant can now be poured out among the nations to bless them with both light and knowledge. We can only speculate as to the purpose of the Savior in giving this more elaborate interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares at this particular time. Here are some possible suggestions. Some of the foremost leaders of the church were about to lose their way and apostatize. Faithful members would be like the angels who wanted to immediately destroy these renegades who had deserted the kingdom. But Jesus emphasizes in this parable that there is a need to be patient with the wavering. Some of these will come back, perhaps not all the way, but at least enough to render some valuable benefit to the kingdom before they die. Among these would be Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, witnesses to the Book of Mormon, who had seen angels and shocked the faith of many members when they left the church. And two, it is important to realize the identity of those who actually spread the terrors in the kingdom to defeat the Lord's purposes. Every effort should be exercised to prevent God's enemies from succeeding in their diabolical ambitions. Number three, we must also remember that the field in this parable represents the world. This is how much is at stake in our life and death struggle with Satan. This fallen angel and his host know that if they lose, their punishment is to be cast back into outer darkness forever. This is why Satan's war against the servants of God is so intense and bitter. With Satan, this is literally a war to the death. Section 87, Introduction. Section 87 predicted the American Civil War 28 years before it occurred and 81 years before the First World War. This revelation also included a number of historical details concerning the Civil War, which were all literally fulfilled. The disastrous American Civil War was the accumulated result of five political crises. The first crisis actually occurred during the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Ten states wanted to outlaw slavery and include it in the Constitution, just as they had already provided in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. However, South Carolina was a swamp state with tobacco, rice, and indigo becoming staple crops and highly profitable exports. The cultivation of these crops required large importation of slaves each year. South Carolina, therefore, took the position that it would secede from the Union if the Constitution contained any reference to the abolition of slavery or any restriction on the importation of slaves. Both Georgia and North Carolina took the same position. To avoid the actual splitting of the Union, the other states agreed to postpone any legislation regarding the importation of slaves for 20 years. However, the possibility of debating the abolition of slavery was not even mentioned in this provision. This extremely radical agreement therefore was written into article 1 section 9 clause 1 of the constitution. This brings us to the second mistake which occurred in 1808. By this time Eli Whitney had perfected the cotton gin which rapidly separated the cotton fiber from the seed. This had previously required a full day to separate a pound of cotton but now it could be done very quickly. This revolutionary invention made cotton a major industry in the southern states, and slavery spread out as fast as the new cotton plantations could be set up. This meant that by 1808, when Congress was supposed to consider the whole question of slavery, the mood was in favor of slavery throughout the South, and Congress tried to pacify the demands for abolition in the North by merely outlawing the importation of slaves. The domestic slave trade in the South had become so thoroughly entrenched that it would eventually take a war to curb its further expansion." The third crisis merely involved slavery indirectly, but it almost launched the Civil War in 1832. This was because the founders had felt very strongly that foreign merchants desiring access to the American market should pay a small fee for the privilege. This was called a tariff and this was expected to raise enough money to pay the entire cost of the federal government, including the cost of national defense. In keeping with this philosophy, the northern states had Congress pass a tariff act, but the southern states felt this was a severe handicap on their growing export trade, which was flourishing with cheap slave labor to produce their crops. South Carolina refused to collect the tariff for the federal government and passed an act nullifying the Tariff Act of Congress, claiming it was unconstitutional. South Carolina even threatened to secede from the Union if the federal government tried to collect these tariffs. At this point, President Jackson announced that a large military contingent would enforce the tariff act if necessary, and under this threat, South Carolina decided to back down lest there be a civil war. So the country was just settling down when Joseph Smith received this revelation, prophesying that there would be a civil war. The Lord indicated where it would start and what would cause it. The elders of the church took this prophecy with them wherever they went, but when nothing happened right away, the people began to disbelieve it. Now number four, the fourth political incendiary crisis, which contributed to the final explosion, was a blunder by the Supreme Court. This was the famous Dred Scott case handed down by Chief Justice Taney on March sixth, 1857. Dred Scott was a Negro who had been a servant of an army surgeon in St. Louis. However, as Scott's owner was moved around in his assignments, Scott found himself in the free territory of the Northwest. When he was taken back into a slave state, he sued on the ground that he could not be returned to slave status once he had been in a free territory. However, the prosecution questioned the right of a Negro to even sue in a federal court, assuming he was not a citizen. So that was the issue that finally reached the Supreme Court. It was simply a question of whether a Negro had the right to appeal to a federal court to protect his rights. Chief Justice Taney decided he did not. That was bad enough. But the Chief Justice went on to give his personal opinion of the Negro and his status in the United States. In summary, he said, "...the Negro was not a citizen in the eyes of the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution was made for white men only. The Negro is so far inferior to the white race that they have no rights which the whites are bound to respect." That's from the book by David Muzzy, The American People, page 341. This decision so inflamed the anti-slavery element of the country that it became one of the main issues in the 1860 election. As a result, it put the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln in power. Now, number five. In 1860, as soon as South Carolina received word of Lincoln's election, the state convention met on December 20, 1860, and passed the famous Ordinance of Secession. It even declared that as far as South Carolina was concerned, the Constitution of the United States stood repealed, and the union between South Carolina and the United States was dissolved. Now, other states followed in quick succession. On April 12, 1861, the bombardment of Fort Sumter commenced. The terrible Civil War had begun. However, it is interesting that by that time the vast majority of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were safely tucked away in the western valleys of the Rocky Mountains. Early in the war, the regions which the saints had occupied in Missouri was totally devastated, with nothing left standing in the entire region but the chimneys of the burned-down homes. Now we are ready to see how much Joseph was told in his revelation on Christmas Day 1832 and the terrifying results that would be inflicted upon the country. This brings
1: us to the text of section 87. Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. As we just mentioned, it was amazing that the
0: Lord would reveal this vision of the coming wars twenty-eight years before the Civil War began, and at a time when President Jackson had issued such a strong statement against South Carolina that it was backing down. And the general feeling among the people seemed to be that the crisis was over.
1: And the time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations beginning at this place. The Lord made it clear that the Civil
0: War was just the beginning of a massive series of wars, that would
1: eventually engulf the entire world. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called. And they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And then war shall be poured out upon all nations. So even
0: though people generally thought the crisis with South Carolina was over, the Lord predicted otherwise. Not only would South Carolina be the place where the rebellion would begin, but it would spread among all the southern states until there would be a complete division between the North and the South. Furthermore, the southern states would appeal to Great Britain and, quote, other nations, unquote, for support. And the day would come when quote they, unquote, meaning Great Britain and the other nations, would seek help to defend themselves, and the Lord declared, quote, thus war would be poured upon all nations. Unquote. Notice that this prophecy does not allow a single state to escape the devastation of the civil war. South Carolina led the way in December 1860. In January 1861, the seceding states included Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana. Then came Texas in February, Virginia in April, Arkansas and North Carolina in May, and finally Tennessee in June. By that time, the entire prophecy concerning the division between the North and the South was fulfilled. The appeal to Great Britain and, quote, other nations, unquote, began in May 1861 when the southern states sent a commission to Europe to seek recognition for the Confederacy. Delegates went to England, France, Holland,
1: and Belgium. And it shall come to pass after many days, slaves shall rise up against their masters who shall be marshaled and disciplined for war. Notice that the prediction concerning the
0: slaves rising up against their masters is not to come to pass until, quote, after many days, unquote. Although some slaves rose up and participated in the civil war against the Union, it was not a general uprising of the slaves against their masters, who were, quote, marshaled and disciplined for war, unquote, who determined the outcome of the conflict. A more literal fulfillment of the uprising of slaves against their masters occurred in 1989-1991, to when fifteen communist slave states overthrew their Soviet-imposed dictatorships and the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact of the
1: communist slave states ceased to exist. And it shall come to pass also that the remnants who are left of the land will marshal themselves, and shall become exceedingly angry, and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. But this verse implies that there are still elements of this
0: prophecy which yet remain to be fulfilled. Who are the, quote, remnants, unquote, referred to in this verse who will become exceedingly angry and vex the American Gentiles?
1: And thus with the sword and by bloodshed the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague, and earthquake, and the thunder of heaven, and the fierce and vivid lightning also, shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath, and indignation, and chastening hand of an Almighty God, until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. The extreme disasters predicted in this verse may well remain to be fulfilled in the future that the cry of the saints and of the blood of the saints shall cease to come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. There is a strong
0: implication in this verse that even as the saints had to cry unto the Lord in Missouri and Illinois and have their wrongs avenged by the civil war, even so there may be a future time when the saints might find it necessary to plead with the Lord to protect them from enemies that may yet arise unexpectedly.
1: Wherefore, stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come. For behold, it cometh quickly, saith the Lord. Amen. To survive
0: the calamities mentioned in verse 8, the Lord instructs the saints to stand in holy places, which shall be appointed unto them, and there they will be protected until the time of the Lord's glorious second coming. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith by W. Cleon Skousen,
1: go to SkousenLibrary.com. Look for his book titled Brother Joseph.